faith. Okay, so with that, Joel Richardson is with us this morning. He has been, become a dear friend of ours. He was here Friday night talking about prophecy. Uh, yesterday, uh, last night, it was, yeah, it was last night. It feels like forever. Uh, he shared the ministries that he's involved with, which was fantastic. So, uh, Joel, you don't need an introduction. Is that all right? Okay. Welcome, Joel. Thanks so much. <laughs> Just kidding, right there. He had it perfect. That's the unredeemed part of me coming out. Good morning, everyone. So yeah, it's been fun. We uh, we talked a bit about sort of sort of prophecy on Friday night, and and talked about some different ministries working throughout the Middle East last night. Um, this morning, I think <clears throat> I think it's an appropriate message uh, for Sunday morning. We're going to look at the prophecy of Habakkuk. How many people here have really spent just a lot of time in the prophecy of Habakkuk? It's, uh, it's actually one of my favorite passages and, and books right now. It's a real short three-chapter book. Um, but I, in, in so many ways, I think it's an incredibly appropriate word for this hour for our nation. And, um, yeah, I, I called it a word for America um, that might be a little audacious, but it's, it's, it's quite accurate, actually. Um, let's go ahead and just jump right in to Habakkuk chapter 1, 1 through 4. So let me just begin by saying this. Habakkuk is someone that we can, I think, most of us can relate to. So he's someone who, have, okay, so you had the divided kingdoms by this time, so this is shortly after the kingdoms were divided. You had the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. Habakkuk is in the kingdom of Judah. And he loved his nation. He loved his kingdom. And he was a man of God. He had a passion to see his fellow countrymen serving the Lord in faithfulness. And he was an intercessor. So he's crying out. And this is where we, uh, where we begin. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. The oracle which Habakkuk, the prophet, saw. And he starts out, he's, he's praying. He says, how long, O Lord, will I call out to you for help? Now, he's not talking personally in his own life. He's talking about his nation. And he says, and you don't seem to hear. You don't seem to be responding. He says, I cry out to you and I say violence. You know, everywhere I look, there's violence in my kingdom. And yet you don't seem to be pouring out your spirit. You don't seem to be sending revival. He says, why do you make me see so much iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? He says, yes, destruction and violence are before me. What was the name of the uh, autonomous little thing that they set up downtown? Ch Chad? Chaz. Why do you make me look upon these petulant children? No, I'm just kidding. Um, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists. Contention arises. You know, this just division, contention. <laughs> Therefore, the law is ignored. Justice is never upheld. The wicked surround the righteous. Justice is continually perverted. And it's not just Chaz. Chaz? Chaz. Do you guys, <laughs> they didn't know. They, they couldn't decide. Do you guys remember when I was a kid in the 1980s, there was the movie Chud? 
cannibalistic humanoid underground dwellers. Um, this is the similar but different. Anyway, um, I don't know where that came from. It's not just, so it's easy for me, you know, to, it's easy for me to make fun of that, but it's, it's, there is a lack of justice across the boards, regardless as to, you know, where you stand politically, there's just, we live in an age of injustices, and there's a cry that's rising up throughout the earth for legitimate justice. Why is, why does it seem as though legitimate justice is perpetually never upheld, and you can even see that cry here in Habakkuk, the Lord has an answer for that. It's called the day of the Lord, the day of justice. In verse 5, he, the Lord responds. Now, this is funny. I mean, it's not funny, but it's... The Lord says, look among the nations and observe. So now the Lord responds to Habakkuk. He goes, listen, you're crying out for revival in your nation. Like, you want me to pour out my spirit. You want, it, you want me to change your fellow countrymen. And the Lord responds, he says, behold, observe, be, you're, be astonished. Like this is a, an amazing thing that I'm about to tell you. He says, because I'm about to do something in your days, you would not believe it if you were told. Now, the reason I say this is funny is because this is one of those verses that is continually quoted in the churches completely out of context. So um, Greg uh, gave me a little piece of paper that's from one of these calendars that every day has a new Far Side comic on it, you know, with the date, and, but there's also the Christian little calendars. I mean, I guess we still have them, you know, that sit on your office desk with a little inspirational scripture verse and, um, and the date, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? So I saw one one day. I was standing in someone's office, and I looked, and it said Daniel 8, and it, at the bottom it said, um, he will perform his will and prosper. This is supposed to be an inspirational verse for the day. Well, I looked at it, and I'm like an end time guy, and I was like, it's talking about the, that's talking about the Antichrist. He will perform his will and prosper. I was like, this is not an inspirational quote of the day. But some proofreader just threw out a scripture and said, that sounds good, you know, the Google. And, and, um, and similarly, this is one of those passages that, People are like, I just want to declare the Lord is, I'm going to do something in your day. You wouldn't believe it if you were told. And everyone's like, amen. So this is the Lord's response to Habakkuk. He goes, you're crying out for revival in your nation. He goes, but I'm going to tell you what I'm about to do, and you're not going to believe it. So verse 6 through 7, the Lord says, behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They're dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Verse 8 through 9, their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They swoop in like an eagle to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces move forward. They collect captives like sand. So it's not a good response that the Lord has. You know, the Lord goes, I'm about to do something in your day. You wouldn't believe it. So again, Habakkuk as a man of God, as an intercessor, he's saying, do what you've done in the past. 
When things get bad, the church rises up. Well, it's not the church back then, but the people of God rise up. We pray, we cry out to you. You pour out your spirit. You send revival. You turn the nation back to you. And the Lord goes, actually, this time, I'm not going to do it that way. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying this is what the Lord is going to do with the United States. I don't know what the future holds. But I think we can all identify with Habakkuk in terms of just groaning and sighing and looking out and saying, Lord, do something. Turn the heart of this nation back to you. And he may do that. He may in his mercy. Who knows? As the scripture, who knows? Perhaps he will send a blessing. And that's our job is to intercede. On the other hand, there are times in history where the Lord says, I'm not going to pour out my spirit. What I'm going to do is bring chastisement. I'm going to send the Babylonians. Um, I could make a political joke. I won't do that. This is what the Lord says. I'm going to send the Babylonians, this people whose authority originate with themselves, they're going to invade your kingdom and destroy you. Now, the Lord's goals are the same as Habakkuk. He wants a people that are fully committed to him. He wants a people who are holy and wholly given to him. But sometimes his means of reaching that goal are quite different than what we would do, you know, with our, as parents, right? Sometimes you give in to your children, other times you punish them. Like it's always contingent on, and the Lord is, he's the one that knows the, the best means to achieve that end. Now I'm going to shift here because I want to lay some groundwork for what we're going to look at in chapter 3 of Habakkuk, but I want to talk a little bit about the promises in the Bible concerning the Messiah, concerning Jesus. So again, as Christians, we, we primarily study, you know, when I first got saved, I opened up the Gospel of Matthew. I started reading the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of John. I started reading about Jesus, and that's a great way to introduce someone to Jesus. But the Bible actually began introducing him long before the Gospels. And the foundation prophecy, I call it the mother prophecy, for all messianic hope. Really, the foundation prophecy for the gospel itself begins in the very beginning of the book, Genesis 3. So Genesis 3.15, Adam and Eve have disobeyed the Lord. They're in the garden. And, and this is just unfathomable to really wrap our heads around. They experience true, unbroken fellowship with the Lord in Eden, in the garden. They tasted the ideal living scenario of humanity. So um, I uh, just the other day, this is, I, I can't remember if I told you guys this but, um, or where I was saying it, but I, uh, my, I just turned 50, and my son the other day said, Dad, I dare you. Well, he was challenging me if I could do a backflip. And, um, and so we went out, we took out the mat in the backyard, and I tried it. I don't know what I was thinking. I landed full-blown on my head and come crashing down, and the whole right side of my body went numb, and I thought I broke my neck. And I laid there like, you just made the stupidest decision of your life. For, and like for two minutes, I was like, like I'm, like, I'm gonna tell him to call the ambulance, I can't move. And I was just thinking like, you idiot, idiot, stupid, stupid idiot. Now, how many people can relate to like that? Think of Adam and Eve. Think of the regret 
the pain, the sting. Like they're like, we, they had tasted paradise. And all he said is, don't eat this one. Don't eat from this one. And they did it. Suddenly, corruption, sin, death, like everything that comes with the curse, and they tasted it. And for the rest of their lives, and they lived a long time, they tasted the sting and they were yearning for the restoration of Eden. But so here we are, as soon as this thing happens, and this is so beautiful, as soon as the fall takes place, and again, we can elaborate on all that that entails, the Lord interjects and he makes this declaration to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity, this conflict, there's gonna be a fight. History will be defined by a fight between, he says, you and the woman, but then he zeroes in on much more than just you, the serpent, which is Satan, by the way, and Eve, but he says, your seed and her seed. And this is, the word in Hebrew is zerah. It can be both singular or plural. It's just like seed in English. You can have a bag of seed. You can have a singular seed. But it means your descendants. Now, Satan didn't literally have children. But it's those who follow the ways of their father, the devil, in that sense. History would be defined by a conflict between the righteous and the unrighteous. He says, so between your offspring and hers. And then he zeroes in on an ultimate seed that would come out of each one of these lines, the line of Satan and the line of Eve, if you will. And he zeroes in on the singular masculine. We don't know anything about him. He just says, he is going to crush your head. That is the first statement in the Bible that we could call the gospel, the good news. The day is coming when some, we don't know his name yet. We don't know much about him. We do, in retrospect. He's coming and he's going to crush the head of the serpent. That's really good news. But inferred in that statement is also the understanding that this one that's coming, he's also going to restore Eden. He's going to restore all of the destruction and chaos and corruption that came as a result of the, the deception of the serpent. And then he kind of says, you'll strike his heel, you'll bruise his heel. So there's sort of a hint, even in seed form, of the cross here. You'll nip at his heel, and he's going to crush your head. And ultimately, this concludes, you could even say at Armageddon, and the return of the Lord when the armies of the Antichrist, which is Satan's sock, human sock puppet, and his hordes, etc., will be defeated. Now this is, so then what happens is theologians will start with this, and they'll follow what they call the scarlet thread throughout the biblical narrative where they go from this prophecy to the next one as the story opens and expands and we start learning more about him and we learn he's going to be the king of Israel and he's going to come from the tribe of Judah and he's the seed of Abraham and the seed of David and then we get into the Psalms and you know we learn he's going to rule on Mount Zion and you know the story unfolds it's a beautiful study but that's the mother prophecy but there's another thread of prophecy that's often missed throughout the Old Testament. And there's another mother prophecy, if you will, because here's the thing is, in order for this one, this, this savior, if you will, to come, he's the seed of Eve. And then, as I said, we learn he's the seed of Abraham in Genesis 12 and through 16. He's the seed of Abraham. And 2 Samuel, we learn, well, in Genesis 49, we learn that he's going to be the seed of Judah. In 2 Samuel 7, we learn he's going to be the seed of David, from the line of David, right? 
But all of, in order to be any of these things, you have to be what? Human. You have to be born of a woman, right? Like, so you have to be a human. Well, God is not a human, right? Well, he did take on flesh. So this other thread of prophecy, it kind of paints a different picture initially. Initially. So let's look at Deuteronomy 33. These are the last words of Moses before he dies. It says, now this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the sons of Israel before his death. So before he dies, he sort of issues a prophetic blessing over each one of the tribes of Israel. And then he says this, and this is widely misunderstood passage, but it's one of the most important foundational texts in the whole Bible. It's amazing. Now, I'm going to start in the English. The Lord came from Sinai. A little technical explanation here. The word came in the Hebrew is in the perfect verbal tense. What that means is when something is in the perfect verbal tense in the Hebrew, it can be translated equally as past tense, came, present tense, is coming, future tense, will come. It can be any one of these, or even it can even be all of these at the same time. And translators, when they translate into English or any other language, they choose tense based on the context of a passage. So because this passage uses Exodus language, they always go, oh, this is, must just be talking about the Exodus. And they translate it as past tense. Jesus interprets this as a prophecy, future tense. We'll look at this. Now, what the scholars will also admit is they'll go, well, this is talking about the Exodus. They go, but the things described here didn't really happen at the Exodus. They go, um, Moses was just using like overly exaggerated sort of flamboyant hyper hyperbolic language, like overly poetic. Like the things here described didn't really happen at the Exodus, but that's what it's talking about. And I go, no, this is a prophecy. This is the first prophecy in the whole Bible about the return of Jesus. So here, the coming Savior is not just the promised one that would be born as a human. Now here he's described as God Almighty coming from heaven to save us. And that's where you sort of have these two narratives, these two pictures. And then as you move forward in Scripture, it intertwines these two prophetic threads. To where suddenly you start realizing as you move forward, oh wait, the seed of Eve, Abraham, Judah, and David is the same one as Yahweh God Almighty who comes from heaven. So don't ever let anyone tell you, by the way, the idea that the Messiah would come twice, that he would first be born, his first coming, and then return, that that's some unique, novel, Christian New Testament idea. It's taught thoroughly throughout the Old Testament. That story, that narrative is clear. But as it moves forward, the two story, and you realize, oh, the one who is going to be born as a human is God Almighty that will come back to save us. Okay, so with that said, I'm going to read this as I believe it should be read, translated properly. The Lord will come from Sinai. So he's portrayed as marching from the south. So picture you're in Jerusalem, the heart of the kingdom of Judah, and you're looking south as various passages describe, and you're looking south to these mountains of Sinai. This is sort of where Israel came out of the Exodus. And it lists these different 
massive mountains to the south, Sierra, Paran, they're just different massive mountains. The Lord will come from Sinai, and he will dawn on them from Sierra. So it uses the language of the dawning, the rising of the sun. He will shine forth, like radiating from Mount Paran, over the mountains. Now there's an irony here, because the sun rises where? In the east. Here, the sun is like shining from the south, but it's not the sun. It's the Lord himself. And he will come from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. That's, this is New Testament language for the return of Jesus. And at his right hand is lightning flashing, shooting out of his hands, which is super cool because Moses never saw the Avengers. You know, you think about it back then, right? They, like, they, he didn't grow up reading comic books where people shoot rays out of their hands and this type of thing. But he has this picture of this God Almighty in anthropomorphic form. In other words, he's in the form of a man, two arms, two legs, and he's got lightning shooting out of his hands. And then um, verse, I'm going to skip forward to verse 26. This is a beautiful verse. It says, there is no one like the God of Jeshurun. Now, Jeshurun is a pet name for Israel. It means my upright ones. And it's saying, of all the gods of the earth, all the false gods of the earth, there's no one like the God of Israel who rides across the heavens to help you and on the clouds in his majesty. So this is kind of neat little historical backstory. As Israel was coming out of the desert of the Exodus and going into the promised land, the people who were in the promised land, the land of Canaan, they worshiped Baal. And they said that Baal is the storm god. And they called Baal the, the one who rides on the clouds. And the Israelites are like, oh, really? So this is what's called polemical. It's, uh, they're making fun of the false gods. And so the Israelites are like, oh, really? Your god rides on the clouds, does he? We just followed our god 40 years through the desert. And we saw him with our eyeballs leading us in the pillar of cloud. Like, your God is a pathetic, false God. He doesn't ride, he doesn't control the weather and the storms. He doesn't ride on the clouds. We've seen our God riding on the cloud. Like, you know, the, the, when you read the Old Testament narrative of the Exodus, it says that the Lord was in the cloud and he's leading them. And the cloud represents the very presence of God and at times it refers to the cloud as the angel of the Lord. And the Lord says, obey this angel because my name is in him. You know, it's this kind of strange thing. You go, is it the Lord? Or, you know, it's, it's like when the Lord speaks from heaven and says, behold, my beloved son, listen to him. You know, you go, so there's that sort of Trinitarian nature of God. You're already seeing it all the way back in the Old Testament. But so this is where the Lord gets the title, the cloud rider. The Lord is the cloud rider. Even as he led them in the cloud during the Exodus, he's coming back on the clouds. And so the whole picture of the return of Jesus in the New Testament is actually rooted in the imagery and the language of the Exodus. It's the Exodus that is sort of the, the dress rehearsal, the warm-up routine for the far greater glorious deliverance that's yet to come. That's, the, that's sort of the way the Bible and the way the Lord intended to paint the story of the return of Jesus. As awe-inspiring, as crazy, as terrifying as the event of the Lord coming down on Mount Sinai was, 
in a thick cloud and thunder and storm clouds and lightning and a mighty earthquake and the blasting of trumpets to where, you know, whatever, 100,000, million people, whatever, at the base of the mountain telling Moses, please tell him to stop. We can't bear, <coughs> we can't bear what we're seeing and hearing. That is a faint reflection of the far greater glorious event when Jesus comes back in the clouds, in fire, the blasting of trumpets and a mighty earthquake. Do you see the, the parallels? <coughs> okay. That's like, um, <coughs> yeah, whenever Rush Limbaugh would sip water, he would go <coughs> into the microphone on purpose. Okay, now skip forward two slides. Now look at this. Jesus in describing his own return, Matthew 24, verse 27. He says, just as the, light, the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. He's describing his own return. Now, which way does the lightning flash when lightning comes? Does it come from the east to the west? It does whatever it wants, doesn't it? It... Right? Like, I mean, it can go up, down. The lightning doesn't come from the east to the west, but you know what does? The rising of the morning sun. Jesus is basically, thank you very much. I don't know. Wait, hold on one sec. To demonstrate. All right. Well, actually, I should do the Trump. Remember that one? Remember, like, he didn't want anyone to see him drink, so he kind of did this awkward thing, and then they picked on him in the news for, like, two weeks. <clears throat> Politics are wonderful. Jesus was not making a faulty scientific statement. He was reflecting the language of the Old Testament, which is the coming of the Son of Man is like the rising of the sun. He goes, even at, he, basically what he was saying, he goes, guys, if, you, if, if someone says, oh, there's like this messianic movement, this insurrectionist movement, we're going to throw off the Romans out in the desert, don't listen to them. If you go, hey, the Messiah is in the, no, he goes, when I come back, it's going to be brazenly obvious. You're not going to miss it. It's going to be like the rising of the sun. But he was using the language of the Old Testament, which is the coming of the Lord from heaven, shining like the sun, radiating, dawning. So it's actually kind of an all-English translation. I've only seen one English translation that gets it right, because the word lightning there can be lightning, or it can be like the, the radiant beams of light of the morning sun, which is actually a more proper translation. So let's look at a few other verses just in the Old Testament. Isaiah 60, Arise, shine, for your light has come. You know, after all the years of waiting, it's finally here. The glory of the Lord has risen. Okay, the glory of the Lord. What is the glory of the Lord? It's the radiant shining light. It has risen. It uses the language of like the rising of the sun. Behold, darkness will cover the earth. That's now, just before his return. It's always darkest just before the dawn. Deep darkness will cover the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you. And his glory will appear upon you. It uses the language of the rising of the sun. Malachi 4, verse 1. Behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be like chaff. The day is coming when the wicked will be consumed like chaff. And that day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. 
it will leave them neither root nor branch. Some pretty brutal stuff. Do you guys want to hear a good dad joke? <clears throat> how do you convert an atheist? I- I'm sorry, how do you convert a Satanist? Beat the hell out of them. Okay. Um, that's a pretty rough passage. It will consume them, leaving neither root nor branch. Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. But for you who fear my name, for those of us that have been waiting, groaning, crying out like Malachi, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And then we will go forth and skip about like calves from a stall. I love that. Like, you know, these like weird videos on YouTube or Twitter or Instagram or whatever where, you know, like you think about it, like humans are such incompetent species. Like we come out, it's like a year later and we're like they're celebrating because we're like walking around the coffee table. Ah, ah, you know, and the, the, the cows come out and like three seconds later they're like, woohoo! You know, I mean, like, it's just, you go, what? Like, how? they just born. Like, even giraffes are like, whoa, what's going on here? And I just love the language, like these cute little goats, you know, like the videos. And it, it, uses, it says we, right? Like, I mean, you know, I'm 50, so I'm still, I can pretend to skip a little bit. But that, that day, that window's closing, right? But the day is coming when we will skip about like these little calves from a stall, like just celebrating in joy. That's the imagery. It goes, that's the day that we're looking forward to. I, I, it's fun. But again, it uses the language of the rising of the sun. So that's a little bit of biblical backstory. Now, here's the thing. So here's Habakkuk. He's an intercessor. He's crying out for his nation. And the Lord goes, actually, I'm going to bring destruction. I'm going to bring the Babylonians. And he's devastated, right? Because throughout his lifetime, he's never going to see the fulfillment of a nation filled with righteousness. But the Lord goes, but rest assured that day is coming. And then in chapter 3, the Lord gives Habakkuk one of the most detailed, glorious visions of the return of Jesus in the entire Bible. And that's the thing that he says, this is what's going to get you. He goes, I know it's a hard thing that I just told you, but I'm going to give you a kiss. I'm going to give you a picture of the future, and that thing is going to sustain you for the rest of your life. It's, the, it's not that you're going to see it in your life, but it's simply the vision of what is coming. Yes, it's far off, but the vision of what's coming is going to sustain you. And so in chapter 3, and you'll see the reflections here in Habakkuk 3 of Deuteronomy 33. As I said, this foundation prophecy concerning the return of Jesus. The Lord, through Habakkuk, says God will come. Again, future tense, from Timan. Timan just means the south. The Holy One from Mount Paran. Again, reflecting the language of Deuteronomy 33, where he's shining over Mount Paran. Selah. Because this chapter is written as a psalm. It's a song. We're going to talk about that. His splendor will cover the heavens. The earth will be full of his praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. Rays are flashing out of his hands. Again, reflecting Deuteronomy 33, where his power is hidden. Verse 5, before him goes pestilence. Plague follows after him. It's using the language of the Exodus. It draws from the language of the Exodus, the plagues and pestilences, but now it's applied to the return of Jesus. He will stand and survey the earth. He will look and startle the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains will be shattered. The ancient hills collapse. His ways are everlasting. 
So again, he's portrayed as marching before his people. There is a, there's, so as Christians, we just read a couple verses and we go, the return of Jesus is going to be like this. He's going to come back from heaven, you know, and it's almost like wave a magic wand and everything's new. And you go, no, actually, there's a much bigger story that the Bible tells. When he returns, he comes back as a warrior with a sword and he executes vengeance against the armies of the Antichrist. There's a bit of a process and a story that's a beautiful story, but we don't often read it. We don't flesh out the details, but it's like a magnificent picture. There is a procession, a royal procession up to Jerusalem from the south. It's, the, it's like the greater exodus, and he's delivering his people from prison camps. And, I mean, it literally describes people in prisons. It says one minute they're prisoners, the next minute they're singing. You know, it's, this, it's the contrast. And Habakkuk's describing that. In indignation, you will march through the earth. In anger, you will trample the nations. You will go forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed, your anointed ones. Now listen to this. You will strike the head of the house of evil and lay him open from thigh to neck. So here's Yahweh Almighty, again, after the pattern of Deuteronomy 33, but now it's using the language of what? Genesis 3.15, the skull crusher. And here he's described as killing and slaying the Antichrist, the head of the house of evil. The, the, again, these two prophetic threads are now intertwined, and you realize the skull crusher of Genesis 3.15 and this picture of Yahweh God Almighty, it's one and the same. Jesus is Yahweh God Almighty. And there's one translation that actually says you will lay him open from tail to neck, using that sort of um, serpent language, but it's, uh, you know, it's graphic, powerful stuff, but it's intended to give us encouragement. Like, it's good news that the serpent's going to be slain. It's good news that the wicked will be consumed like chaff. Now, we don't pray, you know, and this is not, this is not like, you know, my neighbors are jerks because they keep parking on my flowers and I can't wait till the Lord consumes them like chaff. Like, that's, this is, this is, you know, there are millions of young girls throughout the earth and people are profiting, enslaving people. People are slaughtering Christians. You know, th there's, there's legitimacy to rejoicing in the day of justice. There is injustice throughout the earth that it's legitimate to say, Lord, I yearn for that day when the wicked will be consumed. So, you know, it's not... We need to be careful there. You know, David prays, Lord, break the, break the jaws of evildoers, you know. But when you get into this sort of realm, I think in the last days of imprecatory prayers, that's praying for the Lord's vengeance. We need to be very, very careful. It's a, it's a, it's a fine line between thinking the Lord's going to do our own personal bidding versus bringing relief to the righteous. The righteous have been yearning and crying for relief for a long time, and the day is coming. Now, I, um, I read Malachi 4 earlier, and I ended with, it says, but for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you'll go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. And that's a beautiful picture, but then it goes on, and this is what it says. You will tread down the wicked. For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, 
says the Lord of hosts. So now the picture sort of changes because it's not just that the Messiah is coming back to slay the Antichrist and his armies. It's that we actually, as his people, are in the, in the story, are sort of portrayed as almost participating with him in treading down the wicked. Paul the Apostle said when he returns, when he appears, we will appear with him. And that's regardless as to what you believe about the rapture. <laughs> so like the time, like, so if you're a pre-trib or post-trib, it doesn't matter. We all get, like regardless as to how it pans out, we all get raptured at the same time. If you are, if you have the Holy Spirit in you, right? So we'll just let the Lord sort that out. We're all in this together. But when he appears, we will appear with him is the point. Okay, and it says that we will actually participate with the skull crusher in treading down. I mean, at least that's the picture that's painted. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet. And you go, Joel, you're sort of treading into some scary scriptures here. I don't know if I feel comfortable with this. Guys, it's everywhere. And it's intended not for us to go, yeah, you know, Ethel next door that keeps parking on my flowers, she's going to get hers. That's not the point. The point is to say this cry that's in all of us for justice. This whole world does not make sense unless there is a day of justice. Do you see what I'm saying? This, it's insanity. The present, current circumstances, and it's just getting more insane. Unless there is a day when he fixes everything and brings about racial justice and, I mean, religion, I mean, in so many different ways, unless that day is coming, it doesn't make sense. But that day is coming, and this whole creation does make sense, and it will make sense, and we will rejoice in that day. Habakkuk 3.16. Habakkuk sees this vision of the return of Jesus. He sees the day of justice, and he says, I heard, and my inward parts trembled. My lips quivered. Decay enters my bones. He goes, I see what you're doing, Lord, and it's filling me with grief. He says, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. Some translations say, I have to wait for the, like, the judgment to fall on those people. The point is this, it might, for Habakkuk, it was a few thousand years off. We don't know how long he's going to return. It could be within, I mean, it could be soon. It could be long after we're gone. But like Habakkuk, this anchor, this story, this confidence that that day is coming and that we will see it with our eyeballs in our glorified, immortal, resurrected bodies. Okay, the resurrection, that is our hope. There's no guarantee, you know, there's no guarantee that the nation's going to turn around. If you're sick or you're struggling financially or what, there's no guarantee in Scripture that your circumstances are necessarily going to get better. They might. And the Lord often is merciful and does miracles and he works in our lives, but there's no absolute guarantee. The gospel is not to say your life is going to get better. The gospel is he's coming back someday and he's going to fix everything and he's going to restore Eden and he's going to renew things as they were originally intended to be. And he's not just going to restore Eden, he's going to restore the kingdom of David, and it's going to be a mixture and something much greater. And we will eat food 
and enjoy the things that we were created. We were intended to have bodies, just not these bodies, right? And that's our hope. That's our ultimate hope. And we need to orient our hope to and align it with biblical hope, which is that day is coming. And yes, we will see it. We will all see it. It is as real as this moment is real right now. So he says, I have to wait. And then it's very, verse 17, it's very, uh, I'll call it Eeyore. It's very depressing. Though the fig tree should not blossom, there be no fruit on the vines. Though the yield of the olive should fail, the fields produce no food. You know, despite current circumstances, everything looks bleak. Everything is dark. Though the flock should not be cut off, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, there be no cattle in the stalls. Nevertheless, despite circumstances, I will exult in the Lord. This is where Habakkuk, he at the conclusion, he says, "I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength." His hope is, he goes, I just saw the end of the story. I just saw where this thing is all going. And I believe it. I've seen it. I know it's real. And he has made me like hinds feet, like deer skipping across the mountain. He makes me walk on high places. And then it ends, and it says, for the choir director on stringed instruments. So this vision that Habakkuk had, chapter 3, either he wrote it as a psalm or it was later turned into a psalm. And here's, an, here's the amazing sort of potential speculative reality. Habakkuk lived about 100 years before the fall of Judah, before the collapse of Babylon, before all these things came to play, came to play out. And then here we are. Now we've been given a psalm. We've, the, 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 the believers have been given a psalm. And picture, Judah fell. Judah was destroyed. And now over here, all sort of hope was lost like it was like if there was a good time in israel's history to say i think i'm just going to become an atheist like that kind of would have been a good time you're like there's all these prophecies and promises and it looks like everything fell apart of course moses predicted that this all was going to happen as well but here you have think daniel shadrach meshach abednego ezekiel like we don't know if they knew each other i mean you know I'm sure Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. Did they know Daniel? Did they know? But the, all, here are the young exiles. They're over there in Babylon. Their nation has been destroyed. And when people were in um, exile, they didn't have a local synagogue. They would meet by the rivers at the center of town. So picture these, these young guys, these faithful, devout Jews. Their nation's been destroyed. They gather together. They're weeping. They gather together on Shabbat by the rivers of Babylon. And to encourage one another, they have this psalm. And they sing and they go, everything looks lost. All hope is lost. And they go, nevertheless, with our brother Habakkuk, we rejoice and we exult in the God of our salvation because we have seen the end of the story. And this is what we place our hope in. This is what we encourage one another in. Do you see what I'm saying? And so my hope here is just in highlighting this and talking about this, guys. I don't know where the future of the country is going. I'm praying that he would send revival, and I think he can send revivals and pockets, and maybe he'll turn the nation around. I don't know. I just don't have a tremendous amount of hope and faith in my own life in terms of where I see the division and the direction of the country, and then that political division enters into the churches, and there's just so much, and just everything. It's, it's, it's a bleak picture. 
but I'm fixing my eyes on the return of Jesus. This is, this is where it's all going. This is my hope. When the world around us melts down and falls apart, we have, as the scriptures say, an anchor of hope for our souls, firm and secure, unmoving as the storms rage, as the waves are thrashing, we have an anchor on the beach. We have something immovable, unshakable. And the scriptures say that is our blessed hope. It's his return. And I believe his return, it's not some fringe, weird, sort of um, peripheral matter of our faith. It's the central end point and goal. It's the it's the focal point of all longing, hope, yearning of the entire book. That's the day that we're waiting for, and I think we need to meditate, think about, chew upon, discuss it amongst ourselves more often, because that is the thing that's going to get us through the days ahead. Amen? Amen. So, Father, we thank you for the promise. Oh, one last verse. One last verse. Because it's a good one. In case you go, Jewel, that was all Old Testament. I'm just going to end by reading a statement from our brother Paul. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Now, amen. Okay. So, Father, we do. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your hope that you've given us. We thank you for the day of justice, the day of resurrection, the day when we will see you with our eyes. We ask that that vision would be firmly established in our heart, that we would be encouraged in that reality, that future reality, that future hope. Strengthen us to navigate the days ahead. Give us hearts to continue to pray and cry out for revival, but regardless as to what you send, we're encouraged. Encourage our hearts. Give us strength for the days ahead. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen. <laughs>